0: our congregation is aware others of the congregation isn't uh, aren't Um, but mr henry was was taken off of our campus this morning uh, to our to our lady of the lake uh, via ambulance and so i gonna just pause for a moment and uh, have prayer for him Uh, they're not sure if he's having a heart attack or what but the ambulance did come and pick him up he was short of breath and winded Uh, And so uh, we want to pray for Mr. Henry this morning. So let's pray together for Mr. Henry. Our father in heaven, we lift up our dear brother, Mr. Henry. Uh, Lord, we thank you for his faith in you, his love for you and the great delight and joy that we see on his face as we interact with him. Uh, Lord, we pray now that as he is suffering pain and uh, uncertain about what's going on, that you would keep your hand upon him. Father, we pray that you would bring healing on his body, that you would also give Wisdom to the doctors as they uh, as they check him out and see uh, what's going on in his body. And so now, Lord, we pray that you would uh, that you would guard him, that you would uh, that you would. Heal his body and restore him, Father, and we pray this in the strong and the powerful name of Christ, our Savior, amen. Well, as Dr. David said, it's uh, it's. This Sunday we're returning to the Sermon on the Mount, and it's good to be back in the Sermon on the Mount. I love the Sermon on the Mount because it's an incredibly practical uh, passage and text for the Christian life. Uh, Jesus is addressing the disciples as they're, following, as they're following him. And he kind of pauses and he goes up on the mountain and he begins to sit down and to teach them about God's word and about what it means to actually live in the kingdom of God, this kind of kingdom reality. And so if you remember in, in Matthew chapter 5, there's the Beatitudes, uh, blessed are those, and he goes on through that and, and talks about the Beatitudes and what it means to be blessed of God and how to live uh, following Christ. Um, And how to to live following God. Uh, And then he goes on to talk about an important aspect of what it means to be a worshiper of God, to be a disciple of his. And that importance is called righteousness. And righteousness really is kind of the key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And the title of the message is Beneath the Surface. Beneath the surface. I think in a lot of ways, it's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. With the Sermon on the Mount, he's digging beneath the surface. He's kind of meddling, right, in the disciples' lives. And, and consequently, even in our lives, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I find most fascinating are caverns. Uh, I remember as a young boy traveling to different parts of the country and being able to go and explore these caverns. Uh, explore maybe is a little bit uh, over exaggerating but tour uh, the caverns and we'd kind of go into the caverns and you know we'd follow down deep uh, follow the guide down deep into the earth Uh, and what's really interesting is if you're just looking at the side of the the hill or the mountain uh, you wouldn't think anything of you, you wouldn't even think that there'd be a cavern there you know, but but as you step into the cavern and you begin, begin going down, you realize there's a whole different world that exists beneath the surface, right? And I think, in one sense, that's what Jesus is is challenging us to. That right? there's this whole different world beneath the surface of what we uh, what we give off as an appearance. And so we've said in the past that the Sermon on the Mount is probably the most significant sermon ever preached for the church, and I think that's true. This morning, what I want us to see from the challenge that Jesus lays before us is that righteous living is concerned with bringing glory to God, not to oneself. Righteous living is, cons- is concerned with bringing glory to God and not to oneself. And so Jesus is speaking about this reality of kingdom living. He's speaking about really daily Christian living. What does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? And so what Jesus is doing is he's, he's speaking into the disciples' lives, and he's saying, here's how you are to live. Here's what your life ought to look like. And so we noted a couple of things in the beginning when we started the series, and that is there were two realities. And this kind of frames the Sermon on the Mount. The first reality is that there is only, only one way to enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the righteous will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, right? This is what He says in Matthew 5, 20. That's a pretty tall order, unless your righteousness is, is exceeding the scribes and the Pharisees. And the second reality that He says is, many on that day who, who thought their deeds that were righteous would get them entrance into the kingdom of heaven, actually will not gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Because heaven. in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? And in your name do many mighty works? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so many on that day who thought their deeds were righteous will find out that they're actually banished from God's glorious and merciful presence. And so entrance into the kingdom of God is actually contingent upon this characteristic of righteousness. So it's important for us to understand this term Righteousness. What does Jesus mean by righteousness? By surpassing righteousness? Well, really, there are two ways that we can understand righteousness. And I think we need to kind of we need to categorize both so that we understand what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. One way is called imputed righteousness. Now that's a, a theological term, but children would understand it by by the term alien righteousness, right? It's a righteousness that's foreign to us. Okay? It's a righteousness that comes from God, so it's outward. It's this extrinsic righteousness, and it's that which is given to us. So it's not of us, it's given to us. And the second distinction or characterization of righteousness is an inward righteousness. Now, this affects our actions, we would say, an intrinsic righteousness. But this is only made possible by the outward righteousness of Christ, you see, So the only way that a person can be inwardly righteous is if, first, the outward righteousness of Christ transforms them. And so these are kind of two characterizations of righteousness, okay? The outward righteousness that comes through Christ, comes from Christ, known as imputed righteousness, and the inward righteousness, which which we work out progressively as we grow in our Christian faith. So the transformation that happens inwardly changes us and then our actions begin to change and so what is righteousness I want to just give you a couple of bullet points that you'll notice if you're following on your outline just a few bullet points that we will quickly walk through to kind of bring us up to speed to where we need to be in chapter six the short and simple answer of defining righteousness is righteousness is the state of being right with God Righteousness is the state of being right with God. We are made right with God only by and through Christ. You see, the Bible clearly speaks of the human race as being unrighteous. In fact, the term is that we are called enemies of God. Before coming to Christ, we're, we're actually known as enemies of God in that we are actually against God. In Colossians 121, Paul says, And you who once were alienated, and hostile in mind toward God. You are doing evil deeds. engaged in these evil deeds. In Romans chapter 3. The apostle Paul ri- uh, writes as it is written. Quoting from Isaiah. None is righteous. No not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Well friends if this defines our condition before God then what must happen in order for us to be made right with God? How then can we be made right with God? And if scripture tells us that our condition is known as sin and it makes us unrighteous before God, then we need to understand that we are in a state of being against God without Jesus Christ. And so the good news of the, Je- of the Bible, of scripture, is that Jesus Christ has come so that we might be made right with God. This is the theological point of Matthew's gospel. It's that Jesus Christ has come as the promised Messiah, the deliverer, the one who delivers us from bondage. He delivers us from bondage to sin. He redeems mankind, and he is the savior of God's people. And so Jesus is the promised deliverer. Redeemer and Savior for all who call upon Him. But also, secondly, note this about righteousness. That righteousness isn't something that can be earned. It's not something that we can earn. We cannot do enough good works in order to have good enough favor to enter into God's presence. It's important for us to remember as we consider Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount and in chapter 6. And so what Jesus is saying is, listen, and what Scripture attests to is, listen, you cannot be good enough to earn God's favor, to earn salvation. Thirdly. Righteousness is the result of God's blessing. And get this, it's not the requirement for God's blessing. We've said this before, but this is important to see. Righteousness is the result of God's blessing. It's not a requirement for receiving blessing from God. Instead, righteousness is given to those who by, faith profe- who by faith confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And then listen to the next one. Fourthly, righteousness is freely given to those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And so in, in doing that, Christ's disciples are then freed from slavery to sin to live according to God's will. We've talked about this with Connect 365, and I won't venture back into that now, but, but this is the life of obedience for those who follow Christ and walk with Christ. And then lastly, the last observation here, the goal, of right, the goal of our righteousness is to glorify God as we image Christ to the world. The goal of our righteousness is to bring glory to God, okay, glory to God, as we display, we image jesus christ to the world so believer you've been transformed you've been saved by jesus christ right you've professed faith in him as the one who died for your sins and rose from the grave and ascended to the father and, and sent his holy spirit to dwell within you okay and because of that god is doing this magnificent work that only he can get the credit for of transforming you from the inside out all right he's changing you and because of this your character is being shaped and molded. Your actions look different. The way you respond to people in a tense situation, it's different. All of these things are changing and being shaped by the internal transformation of Christ. So as you grow in God's word, you're knowing him more. You're drawing nearer to Christ. And this change, this transformation, this is how we are imaging Christ to the world, church. Believer, this is how you image Christ to coworkers. To your children, right? This is how we image Christ to the world, to our community. And so this issue of righteousness is significant. It's important. And so in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, I want you to follow along as I read the first four verses. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. reward you. I was uh, I came across a uh, don't ask me how. I came across an article in Good Housekeeping magazine published in November 2006 and <clears throat> the title of the article is five things people really notice. Now as I, I read the article kind I'll give you the high point of it, the five things most guests notice when they enter our homes. Now the point of the article is to help us be better about, I think, keeping a tidy home and having a presentable home. But as you get to the end of it, well, you'll see. Uh, the first thing that people notice when they come into our home are piles of mail. And so the solution is keep an empty drawer in the kitchen for your correspondence, right? That's a nice way to put it. Just shove it all in the junk drawer. The second thing, they notice dust bunnies and cobwebs. So how do you deal with that? Well, weekly, you use a broom to sweep them down and use a vacuum. That makes sense, right? Third, they notice a messy bathroom. So here's the suggestion. This is rocket science. Use glass cleaner for the mirror and other handy cleanup aids for the floors and appliances. All right? How many of, you, how many of your toaster looks as shiny as the day you bought it? Just curious. Uh, so number four, dirty dishes, right? Dirty dishes in the sink. Uh, throw them in a the dishwasher. That makes sense. This one kind of got me. Rinse them off and stick them in the oven to hide them. Number five, bulging waste baskets. I don't really get this one. Empty the trash into a larger receptacle that can be kept out of sight. Yeah, like the garbage can outside, right? Huh? Oh, bathroom. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that makes sense now. I get it. All right. <coughs> What's the point of this article? <laughs> yeah, never have people over, right? Here's what everybody's thinking when they come into your home. I I think the point of the article is at least giving the appearance of a spotless home, right? But, you know, giving the appearance of a spotless home, it really only serves to mask the the reality of daily living, that we live there, that we're there. Sometimes life is busy and we just don't have time to clean up like we'd like to. But the temptation we face, I think this highlights it well. The temptation that we face is we always want people to think better of us than we truly are. And If you don't think that's true, just read the Facebook post of people, right? We always want people to think better of us than we truly are. And here's what I think Jesus is driving home. Righteousness isn't primarily concerned with the good or the right things that we do. Even the way that we appear. But righteousness is concerned with the motivation by which we do them. And here's where it applies to the Christian life. When when our motivation in living the Christian life is right, then our actions will be characterized as truly righteous. And so here's the first point this morning. Verses 1 and 2, Jesus is saying, you ready for this? Don't be a hypocrite, right? Don't be a hypocrite. We all know what a hypocrite is, and in Jesus' day, the the hypocrite was somebody who was in the theater. They wore the different masks to, to play different characters. And oftentimes, this, uh, the actor, the actress, would, uh, they would act for the sake of the applause of, of men, the accolades of men, the standing ovation. They sought recognition and, and awards from others. But I think there are a few implications that we can, that we can take from verses 1 and 2. You see there in verse, verse 2, he says, Thus when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. I think one of the implications we need to see from verse 2 is that Jesus expects his disciples to engage in righteous deeds. Jesus expects his disciples to engage in righteous deeds. That's you and I. Notice what he says in verse 2, right? Thus, when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet. He doesn't say, thus, if you give, but he says, when you give. Now, one of the things we need to note from from the beginning of chapter 6 is that Jesus calls his disciples to live righteously, and then he uses three pillars of Judaism to explain or to illustrate what that looks like. And those three pillars of Judaism are found in chapter 6. The first one is the one we're looking at this morning, giving. The second one he looks at in verse 5 is prayer. If you notice, he begins verse Verse, verse 1 of chapter 6, uh, verse 5, or rather verse 2, it says it, verse 5, and then verse, uh, verse 16. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not put on a gloomy face like the hypocrites, right? So there's, there's giving, there's prayer, and there's fasting. These three pillars of, of Judaism. And it was Jewish, and it actually become Jewish law, that when a person was going into worship, they had to give to the poor. Now, the original intent of the law was that God's people would be used by God to provide for the poor and the needy. But the practice of giving to the poor had become more about showmanship and it had become less about honoring and glorifying God. This past weekend, Wes mentioned the believers for Baton Rouge um, service and gathering that we went to. And, and, and at that uh, gathering, Sharon Broom, our mayor president, addressed all of us who were gathered there. And one of the things that she said as she appealed to the church in Baton Rouge was you can't legislate morality. Of course, she was speaking to the politics of our city regarding racial division, regarding abortion and probably a few other issues. But she was calling out to the church to rise above the politics of our city and to actually image Christ to our community. And I think this is the foundational truth that Jesus is really addressing. You see, giving, had, giving to the poor had become something of a have-to in Jesus' day for the Jews. Rather than being a way of righteously participating in God's work of caring for the poor. And so in verse 2, Jesus says, Thus, when you give to the needy, right? Not if, when you give to the needy, this is how you're to do it. You so know, as a church, I think we do this. We, we give to the needy through our benevolence ministry, through the tithes and offerings that are, are given to Crosspoint. We do it through food pantry ministry, through the closed closet, through the miscarriage ministry, through St. Vincent de Paul, and, and several other ways. And so. Corporately, as a body, we are doing this, but it doesn't give us a pass from personal involvement in giving to the needy. And so I want to I want to kind of challenge us from the flip side of the coin here. Friends, brothers and sisters, if we fail to engage in benevolent ministry to the poor. Then we, too, are living a kind of righteous hypocrisy. You see, that's what those who were giving to the poor here were doing. They were they were sounding a trumpet, right? But. If we, in our comfortable Christianity, fail in ministering to the poor, are we not just as hypocritical for taking, not taking the truth of God's word, even the blessings that God has given us financially, personally, to go and to minister those who are in great need? So Jesus has called us to be his hands and feet in a broken world. As a believer, how are you imaging Christ to the world? It's a question we need to consider this morning as we consider what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. The second implication I want us to see is that disciples of Christ operate from a different worldview shaped by a different motivation. Now, Jesus touches on a truth that really goes beyond our actions. He cautions us in verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And here he really kind of nails the intrinsic motive that really governs all of our actions. Is my motive in ministering to the poor and carrying out righteous acts, is my motive for self-glorification? Am I doing this so that others might notice me and see what I'm doing and and then give me praise and make me feel better about myself? Am I doing it so that I would feel better about myself? I think one of the ways that we can test our motives, if there's any doubt, is do we expect or do we anticipate a compliment for our service? In verse 2, what he's saying is, don't sound the trumpet as the hypocrites do. They love to be praised by others for their giving. we can imagine the scene there from verse 2. That's when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. Picture, visible picture might be of one going to give to the needy, right? And then blasting the trumpet sound in the middle of the street. So everybody turns and looks and just happens to see at the right time the gift that is being given to the needy are going into the synagogue. There were these things called a shofar box, which is where, uh, where the, the, the offering would be placed. And this shofar box was called that because it was this box that had this long horn that came up from the box, and it was real narrow where it entered the box, but at the top, it was really wide. And so what would happen as you walk by the box and you throw money in, right? It's loud. It kind of gives this, this blast, and everyone can hear What's happening? And so the practice would then be to go and well, if you drop a lot of coins in, it sounds like you're really pious and man, you're really giving, you know, you're really sacrificing a lot. And so here's what Jesus is confronting here: he's confronting this this outward, this superficial piety, this hypocrisy. And he's saying this isn't the way that believers ought to follow. This isn't the way that believers ought to live. So he says, don't sound the trumpet. As the hypocrites do. You see, the world operates for the praise of men. But followers of Christ operate for the praise of God, to bring glory to God and bringing glory to God by imaging Christ to the world is what motivates the disciple of Christ. So let me ask you, what motivates you in service to God? Is it the praise of men Or is it bringing glory to God? The third implication I want us to see this morning from verses 1 and 2 is that true righteousness proceeds from being a disciple of Christ. That is to say that those who are disciples of Christ are truly righteous or can walk in true righteousness. Can a person apart from God's grace perform a selfless deed or perform a righteous deed? You don't have to answer out loud, but at least think in your head. Can a person, aside from God's grace, apart from God's grace, perform a selfless deed, a righteous deed? Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary said, The ultimate choice is always a choice between pleasing self and pleasing God. We can do things in such a way as to bring glory to ourselves and not to God. This is precisely what Jesus is warning us against. Good works in and of themselves are of no eternal value... unless good works are done to bring glory to God. I remember one sitcom uh, that I used to watch a long time ago where two characters were engaged in an argument as to whether or not a good deed could be done for no other reason but for the good deed. So one character uh, secretly decided that she would volunteer to answer phones at a telethon. and She did it without complaining. She did it without pay, and her unknowing friend that she was kind of in the argument with, anonymously decided to call and to make a donation to the charity. But guess who answered the phone when the friend called into the charity? It was the one that was working. And so as she answers the phone, she, she hears his voice. She knows his voice. She intercepts his phone call and she recognizes his voice. And <coughs> she records... She records his donation that was taken and then recognized, uh, she recorded his donation that was taken. I'm sorry, I'm really butchering this up. She recorded his donation that was taken. Uh, And then after she recorded the donation, it ended up being that the guy who had given the money, um, his gift put the charity over the top and allowed them to reach their goal. And so all of a sudden across the screen flashes his name and all this credit goes to him. And immediately he feels this sense of pride and then realizes, dang it, I did this for selfish reasons. I'm prideful. And then the, the lady who had sat quietly in the back corner, uh, unknown, anonymously there, um, she, uh, she comes home and then upon reflecting about her, her argument, she realizes that she had won the argument. She had seemed to pass the test. But in the final examination, she was really found to be proud of herself because she burst out with excitement that she had actually won the argument. And so it turned out that really the motive of her selfless deed wasn't actually so selfless after all, right? So this this reality of the self and how we approach doing good deeds it's really this battle between self glorifying self and glorifying God and it's only by the transforming grace of Christ that we can be freed from from the bondage to self glorification you see Jesus intentionally uses this familial language in verse 1 and verse 4 when he says from your father who is in heaven and your father who sees in secret will reward you See, when we come to faith in Christ, we're spiritually birthed into the family of God. And the idea of God, our father, conveys sonship, just as a son images his father. So we are to image the father, our father, to the world. But we can only truly image God to the world by being born again through Jesus Christ. And so when we act in such a way as to draw attention to self, what we're actually doing is we're actually stealing God's glory and denying that our actions are a result of God's divine grace. And so the challenge here, church, is let us be a people who don't rob God of his glory. Rather, let us be a people who bring glory to God by imaging Christ to the world. Right. And how do we do this? Well, we do this with Romans 12:1 and two living, uh, being a living sacrifice, right? By, by renewing our minds, by being transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so Jesus says, don't be a hypocrite. Secondly, what Jesus says is learn God's way of righteousness. We see this in verses 3 and 4. The first point I want us to observe here in verses 3 and 4 is that secret righteousness guards disciples from becoming spiritual pretenders. Secret righteousness guards disciples from becoming Spiritual pretenders. Look at verse 3 and the first part of verse 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. You know, one of the threats, one of the greatest threats to joy and holiness in the Christian life is that we would simply go through the motions of our Christianity. And what Jesus is saying is the way to guard against this is by practicing secret righteousness. Righteousness. Now, that may sound weird. It may even sound contradictory. After all, right, Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others, right? Be salt of the earth. Don't don't hide your light under a basket. But what Jesus seems to be advocating for here is secret righteousness, right? And that's true. But the key to understanding this is that secret righteousness actually makes our light shine brighter, right? It actually makes the flavor of our lives more salty. And so the reason for this is because when no one else knows about the things that you've done, there's no opportunity to take glory for oneself. Right? There's no opportunity there for you to, to take that glory and to, uh, to rob God of it. They're purely done for the glory and the praise of God. And so he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And so Jesus is cautioning us against giving in such a way that we would even pat ourselves on the back as if we've done some great deed. Whether it's through giving to a needy family or serving in some unnoticeable way. The point is, those things done in secret, they have a way of grounding and injecting vitality into our spiritual lives. It makes sense, doesn't it? Consider the examples that he gives. Giving. Prayer. Fasting. All three of these can be public acts. But there's greater joy when they're practiced between me and God first. Because when they're practiced between me and God first, there's a depth to that relationship. And the point of all of these is to glorify God as we draw nearer to him. I would venture to say that the one who practices giving secretly will be less tempted to boast of what they give. And the one who prays privately will be less tempted to boast of their many words in prayer. And the one who fasts regularly will be less tempted to declare their fast to the many, the multitudes that are surrounding them. The secret righteousness that Jesus calls us to actually guards us from being... Spiritual pretenders from being hypocrites. The final implication I want us to see this morning from verses 3 and 4 is simply this. The goal of righteous living is to glorify God. The goal of righteous living is to glorify God. Now, you might expect me to say the goal of righteous living is is to gain the Father's reward. Right? I mean, look at verse 1, verse 2, and verse 4. Three out of the four verses speak about this reward from the Father, either receiving it or it being withheld from us. And I think our temptation is to go for the reward. And I think it's because of our fallen nature. We have a a dangerously skewed view of of reward, being rewarded for good work. But notice in this passage, Jesus doesn't define reward. He's not talking about earthly rewards like a a nicer house or a newer car or a bigger bank account or etc., that's the promise of a dangerous heresy known as the prosperity gospel. And if you hear someone teaching a text that truth from or that that lie from this passage run from it. It's a lie from Satan himself. So the reward that Jesus is talking about, I think, is a byproduct of selflessly serving God. And ultimately, ultimately the reward is the eternal reward of salvation flowing out of that eternal salvation are rewards like being part of God's work on earth. Go and read Matthew chapter 25 verses 34 through 40. Matthew 25 34 through 40. Go and read and see how this fleshes out. So knowing the joy and the nearness of walking with God I think is a reward of living righteously. Following God closely. I think the reward of what Jesus is pointing us to that we should see practically would be the reward of a healthy marriage as we walk in God's ways. It would be the joy of parenting as we disciple our children into maturity in Christ and and see them walk with the Lord and become who God has created them to be. And so on and so forth. Tara and I have enjoyed watching uh, the amazing race thanks to Hulu, commercial free Hulu. One of the things that we enjoy uh, watching about with The Amazing Race, or at least I do, is you kind of see in the beginning uh, the motivation for everybody venturing on, these teams of two venturing on to The Amazing Race. And what's the motivation? Uh, It's to win a million dollars, generally. That's the motivation. Because the one who gets to the end wins, the the team that gets to the end wins a million dollars. But, you know, most people who go on the journey together, who venture on it together, They don't win the million dollars because 11, maybe 12 teams start out, but only one can win the million dollars. What they actually find out during the course of the race is that the ultimate prize they set, many teams, the ultimate prize that they set out for really isn't the ultimate prize that they should be striving for. What they discover in the midst of the journey as they go around the world and travel around the world is that they get a greater reward than the one million dollars could have even given them they discover that the reward of knowing their race partner better is much deeper. This relationship, this closeness that they develop over the course of the race is much more profound, much greater than winning a a sum of money at the end of the race. You know, similarly, I, I think as we walk the journey of the Christian life, we learn that the reward of righteous living is a deep joy and satisfaction of knowing God more and knowing His nearness as we approach heaven. Yeah, the end goal, that it's heaven. We, we want to be in God's presence for eternity. But as we grow in Christ, this <clears throat> reward of righteous living is knowing the nearness and the presence and the joy and the satisfaction of walking with Christ and walking in obedience to the will of the Heavenly Father. So let me ask you this morning. What's beneath the surface of your Christianity? Are you living hypocritically? Or are you learning God's way of righteousness? What's beneath the surface? I want to pray and close us and invite you this morning to respond either by praying where you're at. Maybe there's some things that you need to confess before the Lord, your own personal journey with the Lord. Or maybe you would like for me to pray with you or someone in the congregation to pray with you. One of our elders, um, I'll invite you if, if you want to come forward. I'll be standing down front and I would love to pray with you uh, over, uh, over anything that maybe you sense the Lord calling you and you needing prayer in. I want to invite you this morning to respond as the Lord leads you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we've considered your word this morning, Jesus beckons to us for that which is beneath the surface, that we would not live hypocritical lives, but Lord, that we would live lives of righteousness, learning your way. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would, Strengthen us this morning to respond to your gospel truth. To commit our lives to lives of holiness and righteousness. And I ask, Heavenly Father, that you would be exalted in each of our lives today. God, that you would be magnified. And Lord, that we would lift you high and seek to bring you glory as we image Christ, your son, to the world. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?